Good morning, Park Hill. So good to be with you. You know when old people like me tell you, hey, I knew you when you were in your mother's womb, that kind of vibe? I mean, hopefully we all know people that knew us even before we were born. I knew you guys when you were just a dream in Evan and Sandy's heart and really a dream in God's heart. And it's been incredible for years now to just be cheering you on and praying from afar and just now show up and see what God's doing. This is an incredibly special and needed community in this city, um, around this country, as words getting out about Park Hill. And it's a gift for me just to be with you today. My son actually graduated from Point Loma, so he's a proud Loma grad. And he's been here a few times, but now um, I'm here and you're stuck with me. But can I just say, any church where you eat beef jerky in church, I'm in. That's, that's a clear sign of God's favor. So wherever that's happening, I feel the Shekinah glory coming from this side of the room. And uh, I'm coming off a road trip. I was up in the Bay Area. I grew up in San Jose, California, up north. Really? San Jose is getting some shout outs. <laughs> that is a sign from the Lord, too. It needs some love. Um, no, I, I grew up in San Jose, and my parents live in the house that I pretty much grew up in since I was three, so almost 50 years Uh, They've been in the same house, and my mom, thankfully, is not a hoarder, but she is a very organized saver. Anybody have a mom like that, like, really good at saving stuff, the scrapbooking vibes and, you know, bins of photos and yearbooks and letters? So I have four kids. We had our two youngest kids with us, and we cracked open some of those bins and did a deep dive into my life. And it was really fascinating for lots of reasons. Um... First of all, I was just reminded, I'm really old. I mean, I've lived a lot of life. Second of all, I just want to bear witness to the 80s were the era to live in. Can I just tell you that right now? To be 16 years old in the the mid-80s, wow. Um, So good. The the feathered hair, just any song. Um, There's songs I hated back then that I love now. I mean, I I don't know if that's an old thing, too. Um, and we had incredible technological advancements in the 80s. I discovered in one of the bins an original Rubik's Cube, all right? That was one of the contributions of the 80s to society. But the last thing that uh, I really wanted to bring to you that I was reflecting on there, I was driving back home yesterday, just thinking about my time here with this community, is it was very apparent that there are seasons of life. Sometimes you don't even, don't even seem until you look back on them. And you can kind of mark them out. I would imagine some of you have done one of those kind of life map things where you look back on certain moments and you go, wow, something began there, or ended there, or God really worked uniquely in that territory. And I could just look back over so much of my life and see God's faithfulness, um, particularly in reading letters. I, there was, used to be this thing called letter writing. I just want you guys to know, pre cell phones, texts, and everything, people actually wrote on paper, and I was one of those people, and there was a particular season in my life that I was fascinated by, and it was my first year of college. Um, I grew up in California, as I said. I had a cousin that went to this place called Wheaton College in Illinois, um, outside of Chicago, and it's a really good school and beautiful campus, and I decided to visit my cousin, and you need to keep this in mind. This is an important plot point. It was May, and it was like the last week of school. So either people were in hiding, studying, or they were frolicking around outside just free. I mean, they were done with class. And so I saw a lot of frolicking, and I saw a lot of sunshine, and I'm like, this is awesome. I'm in. If they let me in, I'm going to go here. And I, I got in somehow, and I went to Wheaton, and the sun disappeared like October 1st, and a, a cold death descended upon that campus. 
And I'm not kidding. Like people literally, I'm not kidding. I know people that got frostbite walking to class at Wheaton. So it was very, very cold, but it was just not my culture, not my people. I just, it felt like an uphill struggle the entire year. And so much of this was captured in letters I was writing to my mom, my dad, my sister, friends that somehow made its way into this bin. And I just look back and I realized, first of all, man, that was a hard season. Um, I did. I only went to Wheaton for a year. I ended up going to Biola the next year up in Orange County. And I met my wife the first day of registration. I'd take that as a sign of God's favor right there. That was a green light for Biola. But honestly, looking back on my Wheaton year, I began to understand that first of all, there was stuff God was doing in me that just simply wouldn't have happened if I hadn't been in that kind of a year, in that kind of a season, very disoriented, feeling very dislocated, lots and lots of questions that were sort of leaking out into these letters and journals I had written, even pictures taken. I I looked pretty miserable at at times. Um, But also what I realized were there were seeds being sown into that year that, that really bore fruit later. I mean, they kind of broke through the ground later in my time at Biola and beyond. There was stuff happening that I couldn't have known. And I know that sounds almost cliche, but I just saw in one glimpse, and I've lived lots of seasons, just there are ways God works in times particularly of disorientation that we don't know, but there's also God is, ways God is preparing us in those times that we can be ready for. And I will tell you, I came into Biola, the school up north, I was ready for a new new start. I was desperate for a new starting line, and given one, I took it. And that time of challenge, of disorientation, really in ways prepared me for uh, another season of, of flourishing, of harvest, so to speak, and many more to come. And today we're going to look in Scripture at a story kind of like this that I think is aligned to, in ways, the season all of us are coming out of, hopefully. I mean, Some of what I bring today is in preparation, not just for today, but for even this fall. My sense is that for this community, for for lots of communities across our nation, there's a a fall harvest coming that is going to be very much tied to the seeds that God has been sowing in our lives, in our churches. And we want to be an active participant in that. And so we'll see what that looked like for people who lived thousands of years ago in the book of Ezra. So would you... Open your Bibles, if you have them, turn to the book of Ezra, and I'm going to pray. You can even be opening your Bible. God can, he can hear our prayers even as we're flipping pages or iPhones on, but I'm just going to agree, Lord, we need you. I'm grateful for what happened last gathering, but there's something new you want to do here in these lives. In this season of life represented where we all bring questions and passions and everything in between into this space. And we just want to lay them down. And we ask that you would help us make sense of our life, of the story we're living. And I pray that for Park Hill, Lord. Thank you for the ways you have appointed this community for this place, for this time. And the opportunity you're giving every person in this room to play a part of that. So we just welcome you here Holy Spirit, would you come and direct, inspire, convict us in every needed way? Amen. Amen. So Ezra, some of you are still looking for Ezra, I'm sure, because you haven't been like hanging out there in a while, maybe. And if it's helpful at all, it's after Jeremiah. 
which may be helpful. Some of us know, if you grew up in church like me, I'm one of those church kids that was in the back row, but somehow some of it got in, and one of them, one of the verses that stuck was Jeremiah 29, 11, which says, for I, what, know the plans I have for you, plans not to harm you, but to prosper you, plans to give you a future and a hope. That's a great verse, and it's made its way onto countless bumper stickers and t-shirts and little plaques that hang above, you know, doorways and homes, and there's something maybe not dangerous, but a little, um, we need to be cautious with that verse because it's not a bumper sticker just to apply in the moment. It wasn't for the people that were receiving. The prophet Jeremiah is speaking on behalf of God to the people of God, the Jewish people who are in captivity. So this is spoken into a generation, into people, millions of people, as it turns out, that are living under foreign rule and reign, and really they are in an identity crisis because where they had been marked and set apart as God's people, they lost the plot many times, and, and more importantly, that leaders that took them off the rails many times. And their unfaithfulness led them into a season, a long season of captivity. And Jeremiah is really speaking ahead of that, saying, God knows the plans he has for you still. He has a destiny for you, and he's not out to harm you. In fact, it's going to be good. It's going to be hopeful. But what we don't read, if we just take that verse out of context, is there's going to be some waiting involved. In fact, he goes right on to say it's going to be 70 years of waiting. This is Jeremiah 29. And there are instructions that come before this verse that say, in the midst of being here in the city now, don't just sit on your hands. You've got to get to work. And you've got to flourish and multiply and actually bless the city you're being held captive in. So that's the context that this prophecy is first received in. That there will be a time when the ways, we we just sung about way maker, the way becomes clear back to your heritage, which is really the city of Jerusalem, but not yet. And so for decades, they're waiting in forced captivity and in sort of isolation and increasing disorientation to who are they and who is this God? And, you know, there's a whole generation being raised up that's like, does he exist? Does he care? What's he doing? But finally, Ezra 1, chapter 1, something shifts. That door opens that had been prophesied. And the future and hope takes on even more clarity through the command of a pagan king, which is kind of crazy. And it says in chapter 1, verse 1, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, we just quoted that, Jeremiah 29, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. And I'm going to sum up the proclamation, but it's basically pretty good news for the Jewish people. And it's both, I'm going to Send whoever's willing to go back to Jerusalem. Now, context for Jerusalem, it is in ruins. You guys ever saw like New York after 9-11? It's just ground zero, devastation, and particularly the temple, which was the crown jewel of of Jerusalem, the epicenter of worship. And we'll talk more about that. The, The place where God's presence was most tangibly felt and experienced by the people of God. And the the temple has been ruined, ransacked, and now you've just got this broken city and huge need of repair. And this pagan king 
It's on his heart to not hold them captive, which was the MO of Nebuchadnezzar and those before him. But Cyrus, new nation, new king, says, I'm going to send you back, still in captivity, but I'm going to send you back to your hometown, and you even get to rebuild a temple to your own God. And not only is he going to send them back, he further proclaims that he's going to provide a construction budget. He's going to provide the material. So this is a miraculous turn of events. And so the word is put out to all the Jewish people in captivity in Babylon. The way is open. You can return. But what's interesting is we see in Ezra chapter 1 verse 5 that not everyone's hearts are able to kind of hear and respond to this call. It says, then, verse 5, the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Everyone whose heart God had moved. In the ESV, I love it, it's, it's translated whose spirits God had stirred. So God is calling, God is trying to move and stir hearts to go back and rebuild his temple, in this broken city. But in the midst of a couple million Jewish people, and they have been fruitful and been multiplying, as Jeremiah encouraged, there are only about 50,000, we find out, that make the trip back. Now, to be fair, this is a pretty daunting trip to take. It'd be the equivalent of me saying, hey, after the service today, I'm putting out a call for whoever's heart has moved to go to Portland. We're going to walk. It's going to take us a few months. That's about the same distance. Trust me, Portland is a broken city, and they need some help. I've been up there several times in the last six months. Amazing city, but it's broken. And my guess is it wouldn't be everybody. Maybe nobody, I don't know. But, I mean, if you had to walk and do all the work required, but it's, it's not just the, the sheer workload. We're going to discover there's a lot of fear and anxiety that's tied to this return home. And so we see that it's not everyone. It's about 50,000 people that make the trip. And can I just say, when it comes to the church, I'm a pastor. I've pastored several different communities. Um, I work now with a a ministry called Alpha. By the way, pay attention to Alpha because you guys are going to be launching this thing called Alpha in the fall. And it's really cool. I mean, I'm kind of biased, but uh, it's basically a table where you have some talks about who Jesus is and why, you know, Christians put their faith in him. But then the, the compelling thing is over a meal, Anyone with any question, even like massive hostility, can show up to the table and just bring their opinion. And it's amazing to see how God works in that space. And you guys are going to be kind of creating some of those alpha spaces in the fall. But what it allows me to do, my role is I travel quite a bit and meet with lead pastors and those leading churches all over the nation. Even over the last few months, I've been places like Chicago and New York and Portland and Fort Lauderdale and San Francisco and What I'm seeing as I'm interacting with church leaders is they're going, where are people? Like, it's not who's here, it's who's not here. I mean, even today, there are people that aren't here. And there's probably really good reasons for that, but through the eyes of a pastor, there's this sense of, where is everybody? Particularly the people that were right alongside me, and we were building together and dreaming together. And this has been such a devastating year, or year and a half, or two years, or for some longer that the reality is not everyone's hearts are moved. Not everyone's hearts are stirred. And even the fact that you're here today, I just want to affirm, I mean, it didn't used to be a big deal to show up to church. Thank you for showing up to church. 
That, that is a big deal. And what we see in chapter two, it's fascinating. We're not going to read it, but if you kind of skim it on your phone or in the, your, your held Bible, you'll see it's a lot of names. And basically the entire chapter is God taking attendance. God is paying attention to who said yes. God is saying, okay, who are the men and women? Who are the families that were willing in the face of huge adversity and anxiety and questions to answer this call to rebuild. So that's chapter two. And we see, again, it's not everybody. It's about 50,000 of a couple million. Imagine maybe one out of 50 or 60 people take the two-month journey back. They just get set up enough to get the building started. And then we see in chapter three, as the story continues, that they start building in a very unique place. I mean, if it were me, I would build, I don't know, better houses, barracks. I mean, honestly, I build a wall. And they're going to get to the wall in Nehemiah. Some of you know that story. But that's not where they start. It says, despite their fear of the people around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both morning and evening sacrifices. Despite their fear of the people around them, so in the face of anxiety, uncertainty, because they're literally surrounded by enemies, and we find out this is true. They're opposed not only from without, but even from within. This whole project is an uphill battle that takes years and years to complete. But their first move isn't defense systems. It's not a wall. It's an altar. Because the declaration they're making after decades of not being able to worship God is that, we need the presence of God as the people of God. That's the most important thing about us. That's what we want to place our trust in. If we're going to fear something, we're going to fear God. And we're going to do it together. And we see this beautiful picture of them in the seventh month, it says. In the seventh month in the Jewish calendar was an important month. It was a, a holy month of several different feasts and, and, and sacrifices that are offered. And basically, this is, again, God's people off the rails for decades trying to recalibrate, not just to checking boxes, but who they are. And what's most important about who they are is the fact that they belong to God. And so they're beginning to offer sacrifices, which are really a welcome mat for the presence of God to be with the people of God. And it's bringing them back together. In fact, I didn't read in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in, the people assembled together as one. Such a beautiful little line. They came together, different families with different perspectives, carrying different fears and passions. They came together as one. And can I just encourage you, as again, a guy that gets around a bit right now, the role God's given me to play in this season is, is meeting with a lot of different leaders of different churches there is a coming together as one that's happening in the church. Park Hill is a part of that. I was talking to Evan a few weeks ago, and he was talking about the ways you guys have and are going to continue in greater ways, partner with churches here in your city. That is a good thing. Can I just tell you that? Even if you're just here checking out the church, you know that in a very broken world, the picture that the church has often showcased is a church that's just as broken, just as divided. What's compelling about that? And do you know that Jesus himself said in John 17, the primary way I'm going to tell the world that I'm the king and I come in love is your ability to love each other as the church. Your ability to showcase a compelling oneness. And we see that there's something about these times when everything's messed up 
A rebuilding is required. It's not everybody, but those willing can come and come together as one. And I know that's going to be a story for Park Hill. In these even months, not just years, the next months, you're going to see just this alignment with other communities, other leaders. It's going to be beautiful. And can I just say this too? Unity doesn't mean uniformity. Unity doesn't mean uniformity. What's beautiful is when in a gathering, and more importantly on a shared journey, people from different backgrounds, ethnically, socioeconomically, politically, we have different news feeds, different preferences. When we can come together and not agree on every talking point, but agree Jesus is king, and he is the biggest headline in history, not just in 2021, There is something compelling about that that we get to, as the people of God, live into in this rebuilding moment. And as the story continues, we're just going to wrap up this part of the story. God's people returning to a broken city, starting not with walls or defense systems or better housing. They are starting with an altar, declaring their dependence on God. And then they begin to build the foundation for the temple. And so a little bit later, it says in verse 6, sorry, verse 8, in the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel and Joshua. And let me pause. This is really important. This is a prophetic word for just a few of you. Anybody dedicating a baby coming up here? All right. No one. All right. It's going to be pretty quick dedication coming up in a few weeks. Well, if... If there's any unnamed babies, I just want to offer Zerubbabel to you as a potential baby name. I just, that could be why God brought you here today. Because so many of the good ones are taken. That one I've never heard before, and I dare you. I'm just saying. So Joshua and Zerubbabel, who are kind of the leaders of this crew, begin to empower people for the rebuild. And some of that involves like sort of wood and bricks and labor and and actual builder builders, but there's also spiritual building required. And that involves a role called Levites. Levites have a long history, don't need to get into, but they were the people that were charged with the spiritual uh, rhythms of engagement with God's people. We see that back in Numbers and other places where God's laying out the plan for he as a holy God to journey with a people that, are people messed up and broken. And it's like the way was facilitated by sacrifice, by reverence, by obedience, by gratitude. And Levites really were charged with the the oversight of the, the whole spiritual connection between God and his people. And it says, and this is so fascinating, because, you know, you'd miss this, obviously, if, if, you, if you hadn't heard it highlighted, that it says that Levites 20 years and older were called out to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. 20 years and older. And what's interesting is in Numbers chapter 4, when this plan for Levites, for this role is first laid out, it says those 30 years and older. So you hear the difference? <laughs> Suddenly now it's a decade younger being put in play. Now, part of that is probably a scarcity of Levites, but part of this, I really believe, is just a prophetic affirmation of particularly in moments of disorientation, of rebuilding, when as we're going to see new foundations are required, we need young leaders to step up and build. 
And I will confess to you as a not young leader, I'm, I'm an old Gen Xer, we have failed you as a generation, often just expecting very little. I mean, hoping to get you sitting in seats, maybe singing some songs, while we've sort of held the tools in our hands and the blueprints. And I know something God's doing right now is not only bringing his church together, but he is preparing the church for handoff now to put the dreams, the vision for a new foundation in your hands. And I hope that's exciting because you are needed. As I'm looking across a room of 20-somethings, we need you now to step in and, and get your fingerprints on whatever the new temple looks like for our time. Because this is a rebuilding moment, and we see what happens here is it says, when the builders, verse 10, laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments with their trumpets, the Levites with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, he is good, his love toward Israel endures forever. Now, even as I say that last part, he is good, his love endures forever, probably for many of us that sounds familiar because we sing those words today. Not just an A song, but many songs. But I guarantee you for this audience, it was very familiar. This was the soundtrack that they would reclaim again and again in these seasons where they're at a new start, a crossroads, because it was God's command that you built altars, and some of those altars involve singing not to go backwards, but to remember God's faithfulness past to fuel new faith and courage for the future. And that's what's happening here, is they're being reminded with the exact same song, check this out, that was sung over the building of Solomon's temple. The old temple was dedicated with this song. Now, once again, they're reclaiming this song that isn't a song, it's a prayer, it's an anchoring in the faithfulness of God in the face of so many questions. I mean, remember, there's a broken city all around them still and enemies. And part of what's critical in these moments is to just reclaim our grasp on the goodness of God. And that's what they're being invited to do. But it's in the face of a very different foundation being laid. And I'll just land with this because we see this interesting continuation of the worship service. Not only are they singing, he is good, but it says, and all the people gave a great shout of praise the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But listen, many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. Now, what on earth is going on here? Because there's singing, and there's crying, and there's shouting, and from a distance, it all just sounds like this holy car crash of sound, like what's happening? Well, there are two generations present, and there are people that are older that have lived long enough to remember Solomon's temple. And what they're doing is they're looking just at the foundation. I mean, nothing else exists, but the foundation, they're looking at the foundation, they're going, oh, no. This isn't going to be what it was. And not just the foundation, the building materials. I mean, if you look at even the building materials of Solomon's temple, it was extravagant list. And now they're looking at these meager building materials, and they're embarrassed, and they're sad. They're grieving what was lost. And here's what's beautiful about it is they bring it to the altar. They bring that to worship. Drew, what was that line you guys said about lament? You quoted last service. 
Oh, that's good. Okay, sorry. I need to remember that one. Um, complaining about God is a sin. Complaining to God is a psalm, which means it's worship. And what's beautiful about this moment is there's a generation that will be tempted to complain about God, clearly, because they're wondering, where's God been during these decades of waiting and disorientation? And now we've got this foundation going. And it's not going to be nearly as cool as what we had, but instead they're complaining to God. And that becomes the wrapping on a powerful act of worship, of lament, that I know you guys have studied in your psalm series. But there's also something going on here. There's a generation that's shouting for joy. Why? Because they get a temple. They've never had a temple. And they're realizing now we have a place to bring our lives, to bring our hopes and dreams, our sacrifices to God. And where there's a temple, God's presence dwells. And so we see this beautiful convergence of, of crying, shouting, lament, joy. It's all brought to this moment, all brought to this starting line for the sake of a new future. And as I describe this scene, I, I would hope that today, first of all, you guys go revisit this passage. It's a good one. It really is. And the more you read it, the more it becomes clear. Wow, God's people have been here before. And it's not COVID, and it's not a lot of the political craziness and injustices, and, and it's, it's, but it's been disorientation. It's been brokenness. It's been in seemingly unfixable. And there are things you just begin to, like I've taken you through the passage, glean. And I just encourage you to revisit it for you, not just for the church. I, as a pastor, can make this about the church, but this is also about you and your life. This is about foundations and temples that were existing years ago, whether in reality or on your dreams, that you'll never have back. And for some of you, that itself is, is just completely derailing. I mean, maybe consider for a moment, what's something a couple years ago that just will not be reality because of what's happened in these last few years? There have been futures altered, relationships broken, finances drained, addictions sort of taking hold for many of us in this room in ways. And there's an appropriate lament of that that we bring to this moment, but there's also a God who says, build me an altar and bring your life to it, not just your song. Songs are just the wrapping. Our lives are the gifts. Romans 12.1, that's what Paul says. Living sacrifices is the, the worship God's interested in now. Bring that and recognize there's a foundation I'm ready to lay with you for the temple that's not only needed for Park Hill or the church, but for you and your life. Do you know that you are a temple? You are the temple. We together, but you are a temple that God intends to fill if you're willing to partner with him in laying a new foundation. And I'll tell you this, I'll just close by saying as I took my road trip up to my parents' house and started opening up these bins and just realizing how many seasons I've lived, one thing that became very clear, I'm somebody, some of you are wired like this, I'm an A-type, I'm strategic, I'm entrepreneurial, I love a whiteboard, I've got all sorts of great ideas in my mind. And I can look back and remember how many of my great plans didn't work out because of unexpected twists and turns and seasons of questions and anxiety and 
disorientation. But you guys, I mean, I, this sounds so cliche, but it's just so true. The life of unexpected foundations and doors and opportunities that came from just being brought again and again to hand over my dreams in exchange for something God was doing and what he was interested in, not only me doing, but who he wanted me to become, I wouldn't trade that for the world with now the ability to look back and see what's happened. And I know some of you are old enough to kind of nod your heads, but most of you, that's an act of faith and trust because there is a new starting line. There are seeds that have been sown into these last 18 months, two years, that God intends to to bring to harvest in this church and your life. But the invitation even today is to invite him to do it his way and his time, to not build walls or strategies or blueprints, but just lay a foundation for an altar of dependence on him. And trust that he is good. Trust that he is good. Trust that he is good. He is good. And a few questions as we wrap up and prepare to respond in worship. One of them is, is your heart stirred? Is your heart moved for whatever the rebuild looks like? It won't be all of you. But there's somebody this morning I don't want to miss that God has a very unique part for you to play in this church, in the church. It doesn't have to be on a like business card that says pastor or church org chart, but I think the church is going to look a lot different than it's ever looked. But some of you are being provoked in a good way to say, no, I want to answer that call. Pray into that. Get ready. For all of us, have we, in the face of fear, let walls be our, our first job? instead of altars. And I just encourage you today, for some of you, as I just was praying into this gathering, just had the sense of God wants us to tear walls down to raise up temples. And some of you just held for good reason. You've been hurt. You've been scared, anxious. You've been let down. Your future feels derailed. Tear walls down to raise up a temple. And then finally, I just encourage you, and I want to ask you to stand right now to lay hold of God's goodness. Because it's not always easy. It was not easy for this crew. <laughs> Goodness was not in view. It was for Solomon's temple. It was obvious. I mean, there was so much abundance and favor. For this crew, crew it's an it's act of faith to sing this song. And I would imagine some of you are in that place today. And I just want to encourage you, um, as we respond, as Drew and the team come out to begin to lead, would you open your hands? This is always... A good idea, I think, to let our, our physical worship lead our hearts. And there's something about open hands that's just an international sign for help, Lord. I don't have this. You, you need to take it, whatever it is. And maybe there's something specific that is an obstacle to you laying claim to God's goodness. It's something you need to lay down today, a question, a relationship, a dream or a plan you've held pretty tightly. And can I just encourage you as you have open hands, would you just release that? Put that on the altar. Trust that whatever foundation God's laying, it's the right one. And now with open hands, Lord, we are ready to receive from you a fresh confidence in you that you are good.
that you are working, that you know better, you plan better, you dream better for us than we could ever dream for ourselves. Thank you for seeds that are being sown that will come to harvest this fall. I, I believe that for Park Hill. But I thank you for ones that are going to come to harvest here and now, Lord. Seeds of freedom, of clarity. A fresh trust in you as a shepherd that knows how to lead. Thank you, Lord.